The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Let me try that one more time. Good morning, Heritage. How are we doing? Even if it's fake, I'll take that over the first one. That's okay. <laughs> hey, quick announcement for you before we uh, press on here. Um, for those of you that go to Wednesday nights, I just want to let you guys know that last, last Wednesday was our last, uh, last one for uh, the summer. So if you come out next week, we won't be having Wednesday night. But if you're involved in the Iwana program in any way, um, be sure and come out next week for kind of that year-end celebration and kind of watch these kids. Uh, I think it's like a graduation kind of thing, so that's kind of fun. So come out and celebrate that if you're interested this Wednesday. Um, that's really the only announcement. Also, first Wednesdays, uh, you guys familiar with that? We kind of do a big food, worship, uh, celebration kind of thing on the first Wednesday of each month in the summer. And that's been a real fun thing that, that we've uh, really enjoyed. So we're going to do that except for July because I think first Wednesday falls on 4th of July, I'm pretty sure. And we definitely can't compete with blowing stuff up. So uh, we're not even going to try. Um, but anyway, so there's that. Before we get into uh, the word this morning, um, I just want to acknowledge one thing real quick. Um, you know, as Americans, uh, maybe just Westerners, or maybe it's just me, I don't know, but uh, I feel like our culture kind of paints this idea of what, what is big and what is significant. And it is typically things that are kind of cinematic, kind of things that are like epic, things that are larger than life. And we have these ideas about what it is to do big things, and they're usually things that you would see on a movie. But Christ, when he came, Jesus, when he came, he actually kind of blew that to pieces. He, he came bringing a very different idea uh, of what is excellent and what is amazing and what is spectacular and what is uh, important and what is powerful. And when he uh, reshaped that kind of idea for us, he did it with his own life. He said, let me tell you what greatness is. Let me show you what greatness is. And he did it uh, in the way that he lived. And the way that he lived was like this, taking on sin that he didn't commit. He came to die for sins that he did not commit. Uh, loving those who did not deserve it. Carrying burdens that were not his to bear and giving the best of himself and taking the worst of his disciples. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that looks more like a Christ life, a gospel life, than the life of a mom. <laughs> I watch my wife every day. I, I watch... I watched my mom as I, I was raised by her, and I, I'm just blown away by the gospel picture that motherhood is. My wife, this morning, she, she didn't come, you know, she didn't wake up to uh, breakfast in bed. I was gone at 4.30, and she got the kids ready. She came to church. She served in the kids' wing. I watched her day after day continually bless our kids and run towards the vomit, not away from it. Run towards the diapers, not away from it. When one of our kids is hurting, she's the first one to get up off the couch. I mean, I'm shortly right behind her, but you know, she's the first one into it. I watch my wife sacrifice herself every day for our kids, and, and, and really I see them not even realize in any way what a jewel they have uh, in a mother. And I watched my mom growing up, her pour the gospel into me and teach me the Bible and and, and give me everything, and in return, all I gave her was a lot of gray hair, is what she says. Um, I don't say that, but she says that. She blames them all on me. Um, at the end of the day, I can't think of a lot of things that are more Christ-like than, than being a mom. And um, 
while that is in no ways the only way that we can grow in Christ, I think it's a really significant way. And so what I want to do is, um, just in honor of Mother's Day today, happy Mother's Day, all you moms, I just want to take a minute, I just want to bless you and encourage you and thank you for your gospel work. And we acknowledge that as gospel work, we acknowledge that as kingdom work, as, as mission work. It's not just at home where no one can see taking care of kids or, or whether your kids are grown, maybe and you're on your knees praying for them, just hoping that they make it through the day. That is kingdom work. I just want to bless you for doing that, and we want to take a minute and pray for you as a congregation, um, those of you that are, that are moms uh, on this day. So can we do that right now? Father, I thank you this morning for this day and what it represents, the reminder that it is of just how much um, the women, Lord, that have children um, pour themselves out constantly and are such a picture of your love. Lord, you're not only pictured as a, as a father, but even the love of a mother, Lord, is, is really helpful to, for us to understand just how, how amazing your love really is. So God, for, for those in this room that are moms, we just bless them. Lord, we just pray blessing over them. We pray you would fill them with renewed strength, that they would see the value in what they do every day, God, and, and just fill them with your spirit. We thank you for the grace that they are, God. And Lord, even as we go after this to honor our moms wherever or however, Lord, we just pray um, Lord, that we would do that well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 10. Amen. Yeah, let's, let's clap for him. We can do that, absolutely. John loves his mom. Yeah, that's a guy right there. John, uh, so Luke chapter 10, if you guys have your Bibles, pull them on out. That's where we're going to park this morning. We have some incredible things to talk about this morning. I hope you guys are excited. While you're flipping there, I am going to... Man, I need to pray again. I know that seems crazy. Like, Sam, you just prayed, but I have not prayed over this sermon. So can we do that while you're turning there? God, I, I just need to stop, Lord, before I continue on in my own strength. God, and just stop and say, Lord, we need you to speak. God, we humble ourselves under the word right now. And we say, Lord, this is your authority. This is your power, God. This is your, your supernatural truth. We pray you would manifest it now, God, through the speaking and preaching of the word of God. Holy Spirit, work, we pray, Lord. Give us peace this morning and joy that surpasses all understanding. Lord, please set me aside. Make me a vessel this morning, God. Use my brokenness. Use my weakness to shine through. And Lord, may we have open ears and receptive hearts to what you want to say, God. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll read a, a few statistics for you this morning that I got off the Google. You guys ever heard of that? Yeah, best place to get all your information. A um, couple statistics that I found interesting. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults in the United States, age 18 and older. And those are the only the ones diagnosed. I'm not in there because I, I haven't been diagnosed, but I got plenty of anxiety. I'm sure a lot of you guys feel the same way. Um, general anxiety disorder affects 6.8 million adults. Panic disorder affects 6 million adults. This is just in the United States. Uh, social anxiety disorder affects 15 million adults. So odds are there's a lot of you guys in here that are a little stressed out being around these people. Um, major depressive disorder affects more than 16 million 
American adults. Antidepressant use among Americans is skyrocketing. Adults in the U.S. consumed four times more antidepressants in the late 2000s than they did in the early 1990s. The amount of antidepressants that we are consuming as a culture has quadrupled in the last 10 to 15 years, which is wild. And what that tells me is that um, most of us in this room are feeling some form of anxiety or depression. It's rampant in our culture. Why, why is that? Why are we, why, what happened in the last 20 years? What happened? And I'm not a sociologist, so I'm not going to sit here and try to explain or even think I could explain, but I have a few ideas. I have a few ideas, and I think the Word of God has something to say about it as well. Listen to what uh, one sociologist said. He makes an interesting point. Neil Postman, he's a cultural critic, he says this, The tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status, a.k.a. Apple Watch. Okay, it comes, I think he wrote this before Apple Watches, actually. It comes indiscriminately directed at no one in particular, disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted with information, drowning in information, have no control over it, don't know what to do with it. He makes an interesting point, and that is he thinks that some of the anxiety that we're feeling as a culture in our generation is this reality that we are so glutted with information that we can't do anything about, that it's actually kind of pooling up in our emotion and stressing us out. We're constantly bombarded with things that we can't do anything about. You watch the news every night, you you hear probably more things than most human beings in history have heard uh, and would have heard in their entire life in terms of negativity. Most people were limited to a smaller place where they would, probably the only news they would hear every once in a while was that so-and-so's dog died or maybe so-and-so's barn was on fire. And guess what? They could grab a bucket and go do something about it. Today, we hear about the worst atrocities and things that happen in the world every day, all day. Every time you get a buzz on your phone, you open it up and you see something has happened in the world and you can do squat about it. It's stressing us out. Not to mention all the information that's constantly making us feel guilty, like we should be doing more. All the times we see the new diet, the new trend, the new this, the new that, not being able to keep up, constantly bombarded with these things that we're attaching ourselves to, and they're dragging us down. But even in spite of that, even outside of the generation that we live in, I I think life is, is heavy, isn't it? Life is heavy. Life is hard. This thing that we're doing every day when we suck oxygen and get up and go to bed, it is hard. Princess Pride says anyone who says otherwise is selling something, right? Good old Princess Pride. It's hard. It is hard. And nobody understood this more than Jesus. People have this idea about Jesus that he was just kind of this, this um, spirit that was wrapped in skin and he didn't really experience what it is to be human. That's absolutely not true and has been refuted for thousands of years. God became a man and when he became a man, he took on humanity. He maintained his deity, but he took on humanity. And when he took on humanity, he took on all that it is to be a human. We talked about this before. He experienced the same things that we experience. And guess what? He experienced anxiety. He experienced feeling down. He experienced fear. 
He experienced all those things. In fact, much of Jesus' ministry was defined uh, as his sorrow. Isaiah, when, uh, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, he, he prophesied saying Jesus would be the man of sorrows, right? That he was going to come and he was going to struggle he was going to have a hard life. Well, why did he have a hard life? He had a hard life because he carried literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. Everything that Jesus did, every second that he lived mattered to the salvation of humanity, to the salvation of the world. Every step that he took, he was carrying this burden, knowing that if he did something wrong or out of the Father's will, he would no longer be the perfect propitiation for all sin. Talk about stress. Not only that, but he had this, this understanding through, supernaturally through the Holy Spirit of the bigger picture. He saw the demonic. He saw the oppression. He saw more pain than his disciples even could possibly understand. He knew the big risk. He knew what was really happening in the bigger picture, and it bore on him. Every step that he took towards Jerusalem to be crucified, there's something going on in his mind, and what's going on in his mind is that I am going to the cross to absorb the wrath of the Father. You want to talk about stress. You want to talk about anxiety. Jesus, the God, man, in the garden, bled from his, he literally sweat drops of blood from such intense anxiety over the cross. He experienced this. What does that tell us about anxiety and depression? For one, it tells us that it's not entirely sinful. Just because you're stressed out doesn't necessarily mean that you're, 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 you're sinning. To be human in some ways is to be stressed out. And the Bible has a lot to say about trusting the Lord, right? But at the same time, to be depressed, to be anxious is to live in a broken world. And Jesus, though he trusted the Father perfectly, still experienced anxiety. Still experienced the weight of what it is to be human and to carry the things that humans carry. In fact, he carried more than any of us ever could or ever will or could ever understand. This is the humanity of Christ that we get to look at. But Jesus had more emotion than just being uh, someone who struggled and, and suffered. The Bible also tells us that Jesus had joy. It had joy. It, it only says it a few places. Psalm 45, 7, when it talks about the Messiah who's to come, it says this. It says, God, your God, has anointed you, the Messiah, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What the psalmist is saying is that when the Messiah comes, he's actually going to have more joy than his companions, more joy than, than those that are around him. His joy will surpass their joy. In John 15, Jesus, in his last words with his disciples, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Okay, so Jesus had a joy, but it wasn't the kind of joy that maybe our culture thinks of when it thinks of joy. Our culture sort of thinks of this external uh, elation, this, this just real like, like uh, kind of bubbly kind of idea of what joy is. But Jesus had more joy than anyone in the room. But his joy was a deep-seated joy. It was an undergirding joy. It was a foundational joy. It was a joy that drove him towards the cross. It was a joy that kept him on mission, a joy that kept him from wavering. He possessed a joy that kept him ticking. And whatever that joy is that Christ had, I want it. Now get this, there is only one place in the entire New Testament that we actually see Jesus expressing joy. Did you know that? I did not know that this week. <laughs> Until this week I learned that. There's only one place in the whole New Testament that we see Jesus expressing joy. And it's right here in our text. 
So I actually want to start there, and then we're going to loop back around, and we're going to figure out what it was that made Jesus so joyful. So look at chapter 10, verse 21, and let me just point out one thing here. Chapter 10 and verse 21. In that same hour, he, being Jesus, rejoiced. He rejoiced. So Jesus is, is expressively rejoicing. He's letting what has been on the inside, this joy on the inside, he's letting it out for a moment and expressing it. The Greek word there for rejoiced is agaleo. Agaleo, something along those lines. And it's really a combination of two words. Okay, it's the first word is agon, which is much, and the second word is homileo, or homilei, which is to jump or to leap. So it's a combination of two words, that he's literally jumping for joy. Now, whether he was physically jumping, I don't know, uh, but that's kind of what it says. The, the translation here is kind of weak compared to what it's actually really trying to say. It's, 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 he's, he, he erupted with joy, explosive joy, to the point where the, the Greek word has to do with leaping out so whatever it is that has Jesus excited, it's to the point where he's literally just, he's just bursting with joy. We've got to figure out what that is that is bringing Jesus' internal joy to his external. What is it that he is thought of? What is it that he is recognized? What is it that he is allowed to, to see in this moment that has, that has brought his joy to the surface and that Luke the physician has recorded for us this morning? Only in his gospel. So that's kind of what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to, we're going to lace back through the text, chapter 10, and we're going to read what, what happened leading up to that statement. And I want to point out four things, okay, just four things this morning that gave Jesus great expressive joy. And, I, and I'm serious about this. This isn't just a, to try to get you to pay attention the whole time. The points get more important as they go, okay? The more the points go, the more they're actually the reason for Jesus' joy, okay? But four things from the text... Let's go through it together, starting in chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. We're hitting a turning point here in the text of Luke and the narrative. Jesus has been ministering in the Galilee sort of the poorer kind of country bumpkin part of Israel, more north from Judea, um, where the, the, the Sea of Galilee is. He's been ministering in those cities for quite some time now, doing miraculous things, preaching sermons. Um, now he's turned his attention from Galilee south to Jerusalem, and he's got his sights set on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's really an important place. Why is it important? Because that's where he's going to die. That's where he was prophesied to die, where, where the prophets said he would be rejected. That's where the temple is. That's where the priesthood is. That's where it all happens. It's where it's all going to go down. And Jesus has turned his attention away from the, the city of, of Galilee towards Jerusalem, but it's going to take him about a year to get there. Not because he's a slow walker, but because he's got a lot of things to do. He's got some lessons to teach his disciples. He's got some stuff that he needs to make sure they understand before he goes on. Now, what Jesus does in chapter 10, verse 1, is he says, I'm going to take 70 of my disciples, or 72, depending on how you read it, 70 of my disciples, and I'm going to send them ahead of me to begin to sort of lay a foundation for the ministry that I'm going to bring. Now, Jesus had, he, he had a few different circles we talked about this last week, I believe, but, you know, Peter, James, and John, his closest sort of circle, then he had the, the 12 disciples, and then from out from there, Jesus actually had a, a large number of disciples. Here, specifically, he sends out 70 disciples, 
okay? 70 disciples. And, and these were apparently the ones that were willing to go. Now, you might remember in, ch- in chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sent out the disciples another time. That was the 12. First, he sent out the 12, and it's actually really similar to this one. Now, he's sending out sort of this next tier of disciples, this next circle of disciples, which is the 70. And he says, I want you to go ahead of me and proclaim the kingdom. Now, what are they going to do? What is this mission that they're on? The mission that they're on is really simple. They're just to go and to testify that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's very similar to the mission of uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. Okay, it's a little different than what we're doing today because Jesus has come and we're pointing back to him. But they stood back with Jesus in his incarnation and said, hey, he's here. The kingdom is here. Everybody come and listen. So Jesus is sending them out to do that specifically. It's probably worth noting that the word sent out is apostela, apostela, I can't speak Greek, guys. You know this? If you figure this out, I don't speak Greek. So I have a hard time reading these, but I do have a smartphone, and my smartphone tells me these things. Uh, apostello, okay, however you say it, which means, uh, it's where the, the word apostle comes from, okay? Apostle comes from. So, so essentially, sending them out. Apostle just means sent out. These guys are getting sent out to proclaim a message. Now, what's really interesting about this, as we'll see, is that Jesus has some really specific, some really specific um, instructions for how he wants them to go and what he wants them to do. So let's look at that real quick. Picking it up in verse 2. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, I will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from his house. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So Jesus grabs his disciples, the 70 guys. He says, hey, come in here. I got to give you some instructions for what this is going to look like when you go out. And he, he lists off some, some things, just bullet point, lists off some things. First, he says, I want you to guys to go, I want you to go two by two. Go in pairs. Okay, and we know the Mormons really like this verse because they always come over in pairs, right? Um, that's how they roll, two bikes, two ties. Okay, so he sends them out, uh, he said, by the way, this is so not in my sermon at all. Uh, when I was in Africa a few weeks ago, I, I didn't realize it, but I packed a black tie and black slacks and a white shirt, and I had a backpack on, and man, did I look like a Mormon. I mean, it was like, even, even the African guys were like, yes, you do look like a Mormon. They're like, yes, thank you. Uh, okay, sorry, that was, shouldn't have said that. Okay, he sends them out two by two. Why is he sending them out? Why is he sending them out two by two? He's sending them out two by two because uh, some people think, actually, in Deuteronomy 17, 6, in the law, it says that if you're going to bring a testimony against someone or a testimony that could lead to someone's actual death, you have to have a witness. They're bringing some pretty heavy, some pretty serious truth, and they're going to bring it with a witness. Okay, so two by two, he sends them. Then he says, before they go, they need to pray for some help. So the harvest, there's so many people that are ready to embrace and receive the kingdom of God that there is way more harvest than there is workers. So he says, pray for more to come. And then I'm just going to run through these real quick. Then he tells them, hey, you're going out like lambs among wolves. That's not what I would want to hear. 
hey, you're basically a cute little fluffy white lamb, and you're going to go eaten alive. You're going to get eaten alive by wolves. Ooh, okay. Um, not something I would necessarily be excited to hear. And, and we saw that happen, didn't we? As you look into the book of Acts, Paul the Apostle was one of those wolves before he got converted, wasn't he? Destroying Stephen. I mean, almost all of the apostles were ultimately martyred, weren't they? They were. They truly were. Their gospel was not manifested in uh, violence. It was not manifested in force. It was preached. It was declared. And they were ultimately killed for it. Then he tells them that... Uh, he needs them to go with these intentional deficits. In other words, he, he says, I need you to go, but I need you to go without packing your bag. <laughs> he tells them all these things not to bring. He says, don't bring a money bag. Don't bring a knapsack. Don't bring an extra pair of sandals. Just go. And why does he say that? A few reasons, probably. For one, to, to show the urgency of the message. Don't pack your duffel bag. Just go. The kingdom as at hand. Whatever you're declaring, it's something that's happening now, and it needs to be declared now. So go now. He also sent him out with all that stuff because he wanted them to be on a mission of brevity. This is just going to be a short mission. Go out, tell them I'm coming, tell them about the kingdom, and come back. And notice, too, that he sent them to homes, and specifically he sent them to have meals with people. I love that. There's a good principle there in ministry, and that is that, you know, it's important to go to the places of business, the places of, of, uh, where the public are, but it's even more important in evangelism to go to the home. And I don't mean door to door. I mean, it's important to go to where people live. It's important to do it relationally. Okay, uh, James Edwards, one commentator, he said this, the Jewish home, particularly the Jewish table, was the most cherished and protected sector of Jewish communal life. So when Jesus is saying that you're going to go and, and sit at the table with these guys, he's saying, I, if they really embrace the kingdom message you're bringing, they're going to bring you into the most intimate place of their life, which is the food table. That's why Jesus sat and had dinner with them. The most intimate place that you could, that you could be as a friend with another person in, Jew, in, in Israel was the table, the dinner table, the home. So he says, go into the homes, engage them where the, the, whether or not they really embrace this kingdom thing is really going to be evident. Then he sent them to display power and healing. This is how Jesus does it, right? He says, go declare the kingdom and go display the kingdom. Proclaim the kingdom with preaching and proclaim the kingdom with power. It's always both. It's always the combination. Might be worth noting, too, that the word healing, when he says to go and heal, it doesn't just mean the supernatural. It doesn't just mean miraculous healing. It also means practical, physical service. Take care of people. Bless them. Okay, and that's included in there. He sends them out to declare peace. He says, go up to the house, declare peace. The idea is the word shalom. Call out shalom. Shalom is this Jewish word that really embodies kind of uh, a wholeness, an absolute, the way things are supposed to be. So go up and, and declare peace because you are of God. And if they, they, they receive that peace, then come in and have a meal with them. And if they don't, <laughs> well, listen to what he says next. If they don't, Wipe the dirt off your shoes. It says, whenever you enter a, t a town, verse 10, and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, wipe it off against, or we wipe it off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. What he's saying here is he's saying, when you go into one of these towns, if they don't receive you and they don't receive the kingdom that you're preaching, you literally want you to wipe off the dust that has collected on your shoe as a testament against them. Now, why, why are they doing that? 
This is interesting, okay? They're doing that because that's what Jewish people did when they came home from visiting pagan Gentile cities. They would wipe the dust off their feet as a sign that they did not want to bring any of the pagan idolatry that was so embraced in these, in these Gentile places. They, they did it as a testament to say, we're not like them, we're not of them, we're not connected to them. But here's what's significant about that, is now Jesus is saying, hey, if these Jews don't receive your kingdom, wipe the dust off of your feet from them. Not Gentiles, Jews. He's saying, go in to Judea, proclaim the kingdom, and if they don't receive it, treat them like Gentiles, essentially is what he's saying. Jesus is, again, just changing the paradigm significantly there. Now, he goes on in verse 11. It says, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. That's strong language, by the way. Sodom was the archetype. It was the picture of depravity morally and judgment. In other words, uh, I rained down fire on Sodom, and if these Jewish cities don't receive me, it's actually going to be worse for them. Verse 13, Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment seat for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, what is he talking about with all these city names, okay? This is what Jesus is saying. He's, he's listing off names that have something in common. You know what it is? He's saying, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. You know what cities those are? They're the ones that he just left and just spent months manifesting the kingdom of God. He's saying, woe to you cities that were so, had a front row seat to my kingdom and I'm leaving, and you still don't believe that I am the king. Woe to you. Better would it be to be in Sodom than to be in your cities. It's a little bit of an insult, too, when he says that if the same things had been manifest in Tyre and Sidon, well, what's Tyre and Sidon? Those were Gentile, pagan, coastal cities that were literally one of the mortal enemies of the Jews up in the north on the Mediterranean. He's basically saying, if I had marched into Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in dust and ashes like Jonah and Nineveh. But I spent months here with my people in Capernaum, in Chorazin, in Galilee, in Israel, with Jewish people, and they've completely missed me. They've completely missed it. Now, just, to, just a note of application on that, guys. To, to me, mostly. Beware of familiarity. Beware of familiarity. For people like me that have grown up in the church and have heard thousands of sermons and, and, and know Christian culture very well, Sometimes Jesus is like in my face trying to get me to listen to something, trying to manifest a kingdom truth, and I'm completely toned out because I'm so familiar with things of the Lord. I'm so familiar with the sermon feel. I'm so familiar with the church feeling. I'm so familiar with all of this stuff that sometimes I miss the king and his message because I'm just completely oblivious, inoculated to the truth. Be aware of that. This is what's happening with the Jews. They were God's people. They had God's law. They lived in God's place. They were those that Yahweh God made covenant with, and here is God himself walking among them, and they completely missed him. Completely missed him. Why? Because they were overly familiar. They weren't really seeking the true and living God. And Jesus 
calls him out. Look at verse 16. He also sent them out with authority. He sent them out with authority. He says this in 16. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now this is familiar language for our Lord Jesus. This is, this is something uh, called a step parallelism. He used this uh, back in chapter 9 when he said, anyone who, who rejects a kid rejects me, and anyone who rejects, or he said anyone who receives a kid receives me, and anyone who receives me receives the Father. It's kind of this way of saying, uh, hey, this is all connected. If you're against the weak, you're against the strongest. And he's saying the same thing here. He's saying, I'm sending you out, disciples, and you are a complete representation of all my authority and all my power. And if they reject you, it's not because they have a problem with you. If they reject you, it's because they're rejecting my kingdom rule. He's saying that they're rejecting God himself. And the Jews rejecting Christ, they rejected God. And, And the Jews rejecting the church, rejecting Christianity, rejecting the gospel, they reject God the Father because he has invested his authority into the church. Now, I will say this. We are the body of Christ. My body represents my mind as long as my body does what my mind says, right? My body language is a good tell of what my mind is thinking until my body decides to do something that I'm not controlling it. Then it's no longer an accurate representation of my mind. So the the church represents, or these disciples represent Jesus as long as they're in line with Jesus. That's why when the church gets out of whack in terms of authority, like it did when Martin Luther stepped onto the scene, it's because the body was not accurately representing the head. Okay? It's important to note that. So, back to our original question. I just needed to to work through some of that text, so thank you for for bearing with me on that. But, back to my original question. What, What is Jesus rejoicing over? I said I would give you four things. Here's the first one. The first thing Jesus is rejoicing over is kingdom participation. You see, all those things that I just went over the disciples being sent out happened right before Jesus rejoiced. And when he rejoiced, as we'll see, is right when they came back. Look at verse 17. So the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subjected to us in your name. So this is exciting. I don't know how long it's been. Maybe it's been a month. Maybe it's been two months. I don't know. But the disciples have been out doing this kingdom mission and now they're back and they come up to their Lord Jesus Christ and they say, Lord, we're back and they're stoked because they've had power. They've been walking in this power and everywhere that they've gone, the demons have literally fleed. It almost seems like they weren't expecting that. Like they were just expecting to maybe heal a few sick people, maybe do a little bit of preaching and it was over and above what they were expecting. God's power was just poured out through them and even to the point where the demons flee and now they're coming back to Jesus and they're completely excited. Lord, you don't even, this is crazy. We just went off to do your mission and even more than we thought happened, the power of God was manifested through us. And Jesus' reaction to that is joy. It's joy. He affirms it. He's rejoicing, first of all, to partner with his people in the the moving of the kingdom, the advancing of the kingdom. It's a joy for God to use us to proclaim his kingdom. Did you know that? 
Um, I hear people say it all the time. I just wish I knew what God wanted. I just wish I knew what pleased the Lord. I wish I knew what I could do with my life that would make God happy. You want to know? I will tell you. I will solve all of that mystery for you. Further the kingdom of God. Oh, Sam, that's too general. I want to know if I should marry that person or go to school. No. You decide that, but whatever you do, further the kingdom of God. This is what pleases our Lord. This is what Jesus is rejoicing over, that his boys have gone out and have saddled up with the power of the Holy Spirit and have rocked the enemy and given a death blow and cast out demons and healed the sick and moved and furthered the kingdom of God, and he rejoices in it. God loves that. He loves to use us. If you want to please God, get on board with his kingdom reign. If you want to please Jesus, serve him. That's what pleases him. Don't get lost in the weeds sometimes of what his will. His will is that his rule would be on earth as it is in heaven. That's how he taught us to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to live as an example of what it looks like to be ruled absolutely by Christ. So number one, the reason Jesus is rejoicing is kingdom participation. Number two, go to verse 17, and I'll give it to you in a minute. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject, subject to us in your name. And he said to them, this is, this is crazy. Okay, can, can we just stop and pause for a minute? Sometimes we're reading the Bible and we just blast through it. And you don't stop and realize the eternality of what is being said in some of these verses. This is one of the coolest, one of the most amazing sections of Scripture we're about to enter into, and I just don't want you to miss it, okay? Okay, got it. Unpause. Here we go. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. While you guys were out, you, you guys were, were, were manifesting the power of God, and that's great, and you guys saw some cool things happen. You guys have no idea what I was watching. Well, you have no clue what was really happening in the supernatural realm while you were doing things in the natural realm. What you were doing in the natural realm was unle- unleashing and unlocking things in the supernatural realm that Jesus was seeing. He's like, while you guys were casting out demons, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Now, commentators argue about what exactly he's talking about in that. It doesn't matter exactly what he's talking about. He's referring back to the book of Isaiah when Isaiah is talking about Babylon falling. His point is this, is that while you guys were doing kingdom work, I was watching the kingdom of darkness begin its ascent into falling. I was seeing something happening so much bigger than you could possibly imagine. I was seeing the kingdom of God advancing. You guys understand that when you do kingdom work, to us it just looks like a little this, a little that, a little this, a little prayer here, a little prayer. They're sharing the gospel with that person. They're serving the Lord. God sees it outside of that dimension and sees the heavenly realities that are released when we do things for the kingdom of God. And they're huge. I mean, they're pumped as it is. And Jesus says, oh, you think that's cool? You should see what I've been looking at while you were doing that. Power has been released the kingdom has been manifested. Now, I want to pause there and I want to explain something because I keep using this word kingdom. I've used it about 50 times in this sermon. And some of you guys might be going, what does that mean? Does that word have meaning and are you just using it as a filler? Uh, okay, it does. It has real meaning and it's not my word. It's Jesus's word. It's like his favorite word. 
He says it over a hundred times in just the synoptic gospels. He's constantly talking about the kingdom. It's this really important thing to him. What is it? What is the kingdom of God? He says, when he sends the disciples, he says, go tell them that it's coming near to you. Whatever this kingdom thing is, it's coming near to you. What is it? Well, it, it is this, okay? And it's, this is an oversimplification. But essentially, the kingdom of God is this. You might write this down. It is the manifest reign of God. It is the manifest reign of God. The kingdom of God is wherever God is allowed to reign, or God's reign is manifest. It's wherever God's reign is realized. It's wherever God's reign is seen. So if you are living in a way that is obedient to God and serving God, the kingdom of God is living in you. Heaven is ruled ultimately by God. His reign is manifest there. The demons are cast out of there so that heaven is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is wherever God is the king. Okay? So if we're all here and we're a kingdom community, this is kingdom. Why? Because we're being ruled and reigned by the king. The kingdom is not only the manifest reign of God, but listen to this. The kingdom is a reality, not an idea. So people have this idea of, of that the kingdom was just kind of this metaphorical language that Jesus was using. Oh, it's just, a, it's just kind of like a philosophy. Yeah, the kingdom, that just means you like love people and do cool stuff. That's kingdom. That's not kingdom. Kingdom is a real thing. It is a physical and supernatural tangible thing that is happening and it's happening right in front of the eyes of the disciples listen to what uh, James Edwards says on this in his commentary he says since the kingdom is not of human origin it does not require human acceptance or even acknowledgement to be actualized in this world in other words this thing's coming whether they like it or not whether they want it or not whether Chorazin or Capernaum or Bethsaida whether they choose to receive the kingdom it's a reality and it's coming and Jesus is bringing it in fact he is the tip of the spear that is stabbing into the demonic he is bringing the power he is the kingdom of God and he is bringing it it's advancing here's another one by James Edwards he says this Jesus seeing this fall of Satan is not because of the power of the disciples, but because of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. I like that word, inbreaking. The kingdom is not simply a distant future hope. It has become a present reality in Jesus. And one of the signs of its presence is the overthrow of Satan. Jesus declares to the disciples that they, in the microcosm of their experience, have in fact experienced the turning point of world history. Jesus is allowing his disciples to be the beginning of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. The overthrow of Satan is, it's in motion. It's happening. That's exciting. Is anyone excited about that? You're like, well, what does it matter? That was back then. We're still in that. The kingdom of darkness is still being overthrown and he's doing it by the power of the cross through the vessel of the church. We get to be part of that. That's really exciting stuff. That's why Jesus says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. It's coming by. It's a reality. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's a reality and it's coming. And you better decide whether it's your kingdom or not. You better decide whether you want to be in it because to be in it means he's the king. You got a problem with that? If you do, then you basically, I'm going to wipe the dust off of my shoe. That's what Jesus is saying. That sounds harsh, but to be in his kingdom is to be ruled by the king.
Even the demons are subjected to us in your name. C.S. Lewis, he nails this, guys. He nails this in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. This, is <laughs> this gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Okay, in the beginning of the movie, um, Lucy comes through the, um, what is it? Help me out. It's a wardrobe. I just said that. Okay, wardrobe, and she comes into this other world, and this world is being dominated by this white witch. And, and what represents the reign or the dominance of this white witch is the snow. So she comes and everything's frozen. Everything's totally, like the lakes are frozen. There's no warmth. There's no sun. It's just gray. And it's, it's really just kind of this depressing place. And she comes in at that point. But as the movie develops and as the storyline develops, you start to notice it's kind of this, this under uh, sub-narrative kind of a thing, meta-narrative that runs underneath it. But you start to notice the snow begins to melt. Why is it melting? Because Aslan has come. They haven't seen him yet, but he's there. And he's coming to make war on the white witch, right? And the snow is melting, and the forces that have dominated this land are beginning even now to shift and to lose. The disciples are getting to see the beginnings of the downfall of the kingdom. And what did Jesus say on the cross? He didn't say, it started. He said, it's finished. He has not yet consummated the kingdom, but he has inaugurated it. And that is our third point. The third thing that is rejoicing Jesus is the inauguration of the kingdom. The kingdom is inaugurated. The powers of Satan are beginning to wane because Jesus' presence is bringing something amazing. And Jesus is stoked. He's stoked that his boys are getting to be part of this. He's stoked that his, I keep saying boys, there was probably women there too. He's stoked that his disciples are getting to be part of this. He's so excited. This is what this is like, okay? Uh, my daughter, she's four, and she's cute as a button. And we have this minivan, because that's what you do when you got three kids, okay? Uh, we have a minivan. And our minivan has electric doors, which is really great when your hands are full. So you, you hold the button and the door, boop, slides open. It's great. Well, my daughter, she's four, and she doesn't realize that she actually is not strong enough to open the door. But her favorite thing to do is to run out, and, you know, Justice can't do it because he's too little. But she runs up, and she opens the door, but she can't open it. But here's what I like to do for fun. I like to open it right when she gets her hand on the handle. So she actually thinks that she's opening the door. <laughs> Don't tell her, okay? Don't tell her. At some point, she's going to realize or simply she'll just get strong enough. But anyways, the reality is that she is not opening the door. I am opening the door, but I rejoice in her rejoicing. that She gets to just be part of that. And she wants to help and open the door, and she thinks she can do it. This is what's happening. The disciples are coming back, and they're going, Jesus, we just cast out demons. It was crazy. In your name, we did it. And Jesus is going, I know. Isn't the kingdom of God amazing? Isn't God powerful? And Jesus is like, you guys, you know what? I was back here watching, and God was, was orchestrating all of that, doing things that you can't even imagine. <laughs> Jesus is rejoicing because he's seeing the beginning of the kingdom, and they get to be part of it. He's getting a glimpse into what is to come, and it, it just brings joy to his heart. Number three, look at verse 20. The third reason Jesus is, now again, these are, these are growing in importance, okay? Keep that in mind. The third reason Jesus is excited, is joyful, verse 20. Nevertheless, now, he just told him that he saw Satan fall from heaven and that they have power over demons and all this kind of stuff. And then he says in verse 20, nevertheless, 
Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in what? That your names are written in heaven. Okay? I'm really, he's like, I'm really glad that you guys are excited about this. You should be. But don't make that what you tether yourself to. Okay? Now, this is really important. This is really important. Jesus is saying, guys, he's not rebuking them, by the way. He's not rebuking them. He's not going, guys, you're prideful. He's not doing that. He's saying, I'm glad you guys are excited about what, like, we should be excited about what the church is doing. We should be excited about what heritage is doing, what the church at large is doing, what the kingdom of God is advancing in the world. And the gospel is sweeping through China, right? Did you guys know that? Sweeping through China. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people are getting saved in a place that really doesn't like Christianity. In many ways, doesn't allow it. The gospel is moving. We should rejoice in that. But Jesus is saying, don't rejoice in that more than you rejoice in this. He said, keep things in perspective. Don't forget what's the most important thing. He's not rebuking them. He's redirecting them. Important to note that. Now, here's why this is important. So, uh, a couple years ago, I was deep sea fishing. Um, that makes me sound way cooler than I am. I've never done that before. Um, but I just was deep sea fishing, and it was really fun. But we, we drove, it was like an eight-hour boat ride. Eight-hour boat ride out off the shores of like Mexico to get to where we were going to fish. And I have a weak stomach. I just always have. I was always that kid that threw up in the car. It just, you know, it's just how it is. Um, so I'm like, oh, this is bad. I'm sitting there like the whole time, my, my, my mind, I'm like focused on the horizon. Like don't look at the waves, just focus on the horizon, and I'm eating ginger, because that's what you do. Um, I think I had way too much ginger by the end, but I'm eating that stuff, and I was good for like seven or eight hours, the whole boat ride. I was feeling fine. I'm like, I'm, I got this. I got this. Then we show up, and it's time to fish, and you only get like 20 minutes to fish. So everybody grabs a pole, and they're throwing in, and literally people are grabbing these massive fish like every second, every cast, you're just catching a fish. So I throw, get a fish. I throw, get a fish. On my second one, the boat stops, you know, and I'm fishing, and I'm kind of like, ooh. Like, my eye is not on the horizon. I'm thinking about, like, reeling the fish in. I'm kind of just, like, rolling around. Um, and second fish, man, I lost it. I was gone. Fish pulled down over the side. I saw a shark while I was throwing up. Actually, it was really amazing. I was like, hey, guys, there's a shark. Oh, okay. Anyways, um, and so I had, to, I had to put the pole down and, and, and stop fishing and get my eyes back on the horizon. The reality is this is what Jesus is saying. <laughs> He's saying, this is great that you're rejoicing in this, but do not take your eyes off of the most important thing and put them on something that is right here. And this is where most of our anxiety comes from, isn't it? From taking our eyes off of the reality of God's kingdom and putting it on to whatever's right in front of us. And whatever's right in front of us usually seems really daunting and overwhelming and like something we can't conquer. But when we put it in front of God and his size and his power, it gets smaller. We get our eyes back on the most important thing. That's what Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul is saying, hey, keep your eyes on the most important thing. What is the most important thing? The way you received him. The way, the salvation, that's the most important thing. That's the thing that's going to keep you going. Now, I really want you to see, before we move on here, by the way, point number three, okay? Point number three, if you're taking notes, you're just like, when are you going to give it to me? Point number three is kingdom salvation. The thing that is rejoicing Jesus' heart is kingdom salvation. And here's where it is. 
verse 20, look at what he says for them to think about specifically. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, don't think too much about what you did, but rejoice in this reality that your name is written in God's book. You know, one of the most honoring things for a human being is to be picked out in a crowd and honored. If I were to come up here and pick out one of your names and read it and just begin to honor you among people, you would feel honored. <laughs> There's something about that. So that's why they do it at the Grammys, okay? These ceremonies where they honor people. There's something about walking into a room and not knowing a lot of people and realizing that the most important in the room no person knows your name. This is what, this is what we should rejoice in. That God of the universe knows my name. In fact, just so he doesn't forget it, it's written in his book of life. And it's not just some omniscient knows my, oh yeah, of course he knows my name. He's God, he knows everything. No, he knows me. He's chosen me. He's written me in his book. I'm saved. This should just overjoy our hearts. And if it doesn't, it's because we've gotten too used to that reality. Guys, we are saved in Christ. Our names are written in his book. When I come to heaven and stand before the throne of judgment, he will look at me with his eyes of love and say, Sam, I know you. I've been expecting you. Come in and have fellowship with me. This should rejoice our heart. You know, you know what anxiety is a lot of times? And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to minimize it, but you know what it is and can be a lot of times? It's proving our value system. It's proving to me in the moment when I feel anxiety, it's proving to me what I am choosing to value. What am I stressing out about? Usually it's about losing something. Follow that, pull that thread and see where it leads. What am I, what am I stressed about losing right now? Is it my position? Is it my, um, uh, what people think of me? Is it my comfort? What am, I, am I stressed about losing my health? Am I stressed about losing my kids? Now, those are all real things. Those are all important things. But how valuable are those things in comparison to the fact that your name is written in God's book? Think about the thing that matters the most that you cannot lose. I've had certain points in my life where I've hit absolute lows and the only thing that has brought me skyrocketing back is the reality that I am still in God's book no matter what because Christ has purchased my salvation. He came not for random people. He came for his people because your name was written before the foundations of the earth. Oh, Sam, that's Calvinism. No, that made Jesus excited. I'm not preaching Calvinism. I'm preaching what the Bible says, and that is that you were chosen before the foundations of the earth, and he came for you. That made Jesus leap for joy. He's excited about that. You know why else he's excited about that? Because it means that he came to suffer and to die for something. In fact, not for something, for someone. Jesus is rejoicing because he goes, I'm here in this flesh suit, struggling as a humanity in order to purchase my people. It brings value instantly. And it lifts his sorrows and brings him to a place of prevailing joy. Thinking 
bigger than your circumstances. Did you know that God, God is so excited when one person comes into the, the kingdom? You ever heard this verse, Luke 15, 10? Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In youth group, they always used to say, the angels throw a party when you get saved. That's true, but I want you to notice what it says. Here, can you put it back up there? I want you to notice how, what it says. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God. Other translations say, in the midst of angels. You know who's throwing a party? It's God. He loves you so much that when you chose to give yourself over to him, he had overwhelming joy, uncontainable joy, so much that the angels are just enraptured in it. (laughs) He loves to save, and he's good at it. Think about that the next time you share the gospel with a non-believer. Think about how excited God is going to be when that child comes home. This great joy, and this is exactly what Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, exactly what Jesus is doing. He's excited because of salvation. It's exciting to him. The fourth thing, and the most important thing, (laughs) to be known by the Father is really great, right? To be known by the Father, to have your name in his book, but that is not the greatest joy in the universe. That is a great joy. There is great joy in being known by the Father. But what I'm about to show you and what the scripture is about to teach us is the greatest joy in the universe. Sam, that's a bold statement. I know. I said it in the first service and I'll say it again. What we're about to look at is the greatest joy in the universe and the biggest reason why Jesus bursts into this moment of joy. Look at verse 21. Jesus is about to say some pretty crazy things. He goes, In that same hour, he rejoiced. That's where we started right there. We're back where we started. In the Holy Spirit. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So the first thing he says is, Father, I'm so thankful that you chose to reveal yourself not to the most powerful or the most intelligent or the the person with five doctorates or the person who runs a country, but you chose to reveal yourself to the weak. And actually, when he says that, he says babies, and he points to his disciples. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Thank you, Lord, that you chose to reveal us to these babies not an insult. In the Greek word, literally, it is infants, suckling infants. In other words, all of your intelligence, all of your wisdom, all of your strength counts for nothing when it comes to understanding the depths of the mysteries of God. Only through the revelation of God can you know who God is. The only way you guys will know me truly is if I tell you what's going on in my head. The only way that we can truly know God is if he shares you He shares himself with you. That's the only way. And Jesus says, I thank you, Lord, that you chose to reveal it to these guys, the fishermen from Galilee, the crook tax collector, the guys that never would have been picked for any rabbinical list to be disciples. Now, I thank you that you revealed it to these guys. And I say yes and amen to that. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for revealing it to me. I don't know why you picked me, but thank you. 
I didn't have to have a doctorate behind my name. I didn't have to have a successful life in my name for you to reveal it to me when I was 16 years old and let me see the most important piece of knowledge I could ever know in the universe, that God is perfect and he saves. And then he goes on. Verse 21. Sorry, verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, here it is. You're saying, Sam, that is so confusing. And you probably would just read right past that. But Jesus is peeling the curtain back for us to see into something that is way beyond our dimension. And he is, in doing that, he's allowing us to see what his ultimate joy was, his ultimate source of joy was. And it's this. First he says... He says this in 22, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. In other words, you know what rejoices me is that only the Father in heaven really gets me. He's the only one that really knows me. These disciples, these blockheads, they don't know me. They don't even, they can't even get this cross thing figured out. I don't understand why I keep talking about dying. The Father is the only one that really knows me. And the Son is the only one that really knows the Father. What, what, what Jesus is doing is he's allowing them to see the Trinitarian reality, the Trinitarian community that has been existing for all of eternity. That before creation, God existed within himself in a community. And that community had perfect delight within itself. The Father had perfect delight in the Son, and the Son had perfect delight in the Father, and the Spirit had perfect delight in the Son and the Father, and they coexisted, and they delighted in each other. C.S. Lewis called it the great dance. And when creation came and when man came, God's intention and God's plan for all of eternity had been to invite his people into that Trinitarian reality. This is the gospel It's not just that God loves you, it's that God loved himself first within the Trinity and loves you so much that he will give you himself, that he will invite you into the ultimate place of joy, which is within the Godhead. There is no greater joy than within the Godhead. He says, I want you in it with me. How? Through marriage to Christ, who is our brother, is our bridegroom, is our representative, is our priesthood, is the head of the body, and in him we are invited into eternal pleasure forever. Not even even one amen. Ah, come on, guys. We need an amen button, like the applause thing, you know, like, amen. Oh, that would be cheating. Keep working on it. This is really cool. Jesus is rejoicing. Because the Father knows him. There's a parallel there between that, by the way, between that and the fact that he says for us to rejoice that the Father knows you. I'm rejoicing because the Father knows me. And you should rejoice because the Father knows you. And I'm rejoicing because the Father is the ultimate source of joy in the universe. And I get to know him. And here's the best part. You ready? He chooses who gets to know the Father. Jesus chooses. Do you know who he chose? Anyone in here believes in Christ? Anyone in here who believes in Christ is who Jesus has chosen to share the ultimate joy in the universe with. It's his prerogative, his decision to choose who knows the Father, and he delights in that. He loves to share the Father. He loves to share the joy of God. It's his delight to do so. 
God is not some big jerk sitting up there. God is the ultimate source of joy, and he shares it with us. He's not stingy with himself. In fact, he went out of his way to share himself, to die for sinners on a cross by men in order just to share his own glory. This is the God that we serve. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he incredible? Isn't he good? How much joy do you feel when you realize those truths? This is why theology matters. It's not stuffy. It's not boring. It brings joy to realize that God is bigger than your problems. It's not about just some, just think good feelings. You can think good feelings all you want. Life's still going to be hard. This sermon is not going to make your life easier, but it will give you joy that will undergird your suffering that Jesus had. Joy that carried him to the cross, to absolute obedience to the Father. Joy that kept him on target. That's the kind of joy I want. Not some joy that can get taken away as soon as something happens or I get a flat tire. That kind of joy, that's not joy. It's momentary pleasure. True joy cannot be snatched. You feel it even when you lose a family member. It's still there. You feel it even when you get that cancer diagnostic. It's still there. It's covered and masked by pain, but that joy is still there. The joy of the Lord is still in you. It's in you because the Spirit is in you and he lives within you. You are a God-shaped container and the Spirit lives within you and his joy is within you and when you look at him, that joy is set free. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand, guys. I did forget two verses, so let me just read those. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. (laughs) You guys realize that we get to see things that prophets and kings had longed to see for thousands of years, and it's here. It's in the person of Christ. It's in the living word of God. Pick it up. See it. Experience joy in it. There's freedom to be had this morning. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you, God, so much for who you are. God, you're so great. I don't know how it's possible, Lord, that you have perfect justice and perfect love and perfect patience and perfect joy and all of your attributes exist within each other and and never contradict each other. Lord, you possess all life. You have the words of eternal life, God. To where else should we go? We want you. You have the answers. The news doesn't have the answers. Social media doesn't have the answers. Our president doesn't have the answers. Philosophy doesn't have the answers. You have them. You have truth, God. Would you give us the faith to look to you as our answer and nothing else? Lord, I'm praying for a revival in our church. I'm praying for you just to pour out your spirit, Lord, and we want to see it through the lost coming to to salvation. God, we want to go out of these walls and go after with your heart of joy to see the lost come into the kingdom. Lord, give us that heart, we pray. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
All right, God bless you guys. Enjoy your Mother's Day. Have a great afternoon.